Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Senior Editor at Food & Wine, and my guest today is Davida Davison, who I have, um, she's the Executive Director of Food Lab Detroit, and I have admired and liked her for a very long time, and uh, I've been try- we've been trying to schedule uh, this conversation for a while, and as it happens, it's more relevant than ever right now. She has always done incredibly important work uh, with community organizing in uh, her beloved Detroit to make sure that there is a more equitable food system being built for the people there who have been cut off from the source of of power when it comes to getting food onto their plates and being the people who uh, actually benefit from the economics of all of that. And she and her her team at uh, Food Lab Detroit have been doing the really hard and necessary work of making sure that those voices are heard and that people are empowered. Um, We had this conversation before uh, the protests around the death of uh, George Floyd started occurring around the country. Um, But I think it's still incredibly relevant because we were talking about food and COVID-19 and the disproportionate effect that this pandemic has had on the Black community. And it's, it's a really intense conversation that I am so deeply grateful to have gotten to have with her. And uh, here's Davida Davison. Oh, Davida Davison, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks so much for having me, Kat. I've been waiting to have this conversation with you, so we are long overdue for a chat. Oh my gosh. The last time that I saw you in person was just a little bit before everything went on shutdown. And I saw you in my favorite place to see you, which is in the front row, asking... <laughs> the hard questions of people in the food world and everything we were at uh, just for some context we were at the philly chef conference and davida was front and center for every single one of the talks that i was in and and asking questions that you know people people should have been doing for a long time and she and that davida has been doing so how are you doing let's let's start out with that how are you doing since then you know what, Kat, considering everything that is happening around me, considering what's happening to my city, um, and to give folks a little bit of context, I've been in Detroit, Michigan, considering things that are happening personally in my family. Um, I lost a great aunt who died in a nursing home as a result I'm of so COVID-19. I'm so sorry. And then considering what's happening to a generation of elders in the African-American yes. community who have been disproportionately affected by this pandemic in terms of number of cases and, of course, also death. How am I doing? I'm grateful yep. that I was yeah. able to get up this morning and take in a really deep breath, <laughs> then exhale. Oh, grateful yeah. that I was able to put my feet on the ground. I'm grateful that my immediate family, my mother, my father, my brother, my niece, um, they're safe. I'm safe and healthy. And so it's the little things, Kat, that I am appreciative for. And having access to fresh, healthy food, um, to clean water, and to have breath that I can inhale and exhale and don't have to worry about the fact that I am living in a community 
where that breath of fresh air could be compromising because of all the toxins that are in the air because my neighborhood is near maybe in an incinerator or because it's in a polluted area. Those mm-hmm. are things that I don't have to worry about. So I'm blessed. Oh, That's that how is. You know, I'm, I'm finding I've, that I am grateful for every breath, for every healthy morning that I, you know, that I'm having, especially these days. It's something that I tried to sort of instill in myself leading up to all of this and sort of the practice of doing that deliberately has really, uh, you know, that's, that's what sort of kept me going uh, during all of this. But you're, you're a person who I always think of when I was saying like, you know, you're speaking truth to power and you ask the hard questions, but you're a person who, and absolutely correct me if this is not the right characterization, but I tend to think of you as a, a person who sort of fills up your own personal battery by helping others and having this effect in the world. You're a person of action. And I'd like to, and, you know, that's just you know what I see from my side of this. Um, but I'd like for people to know exactly what it is that you're doing with uh, Food Lab Detroit and, and beyond, because you're absolutely right. We've talked about this on, you know, at least one of the episodes of this podcast, maybe a couple of them about um, black and brown people being disproportionately, as you said, you know, affected by all of this for a whole lot of ugly systemic reasons that have been there the whole time and are just being thrown into light. Uh, I want to talk about the existing structures that you had in place and then how you've reacted. So could you tell people about Food Lab Detroit and the work you do there? Yeah. So thanks so much for asking and I think the way I'll describe Food Lab in terms of what we do and why we do what we do, it really is tied to my own personal narrative of, of who I am mm-hmm. and how I identify. And how I identify is a first-generation Detroiter, and that's really important. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that you said about me that is so accurate is that I am a person of action and I do feel my own cup by being of service to other people, right? Mm-hmm. That could be because I am the great-granddaughter, the granddaughter, and the daughter of ministers, right? Mm-hmm. So I understand what it's like to be what's called a servant leader, to be in a leadership position in service of other people. And I also believe that my my ability to be action orientated comes out of the fact that I am a first generation because my mother and father stepped out for the very first time, like millions of African Americans did for the very first time. They stepped out on faith. They stepped out on their own belief. They stepped out of the rural South, fleeing the Jim Crow South, fleeing, uh, the rural South and all of the violence that was happening in the early 60s. And they stepped out for the very first time and they took action. And that action was the Great Migration. It was the largest kind of migratory pattern that happened within the country when almost 9 million African Americans left the rural South for the North. So that action, it's, it resides in me, right? And the reason why I mention that is because it is that action that really propelled me to become first a part of Food Lab Detroit and now it's executive direction, executive director. And so, and so Food Lab Detroit as a nonprofit organization understands very clearly that 
the social determinants of health. Yes. These disproportionate uh, effects of food insecurity in our community. Can you explain and, that for I'm people? Talking, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. For, for people who may not be as versed in this language, could you break that down, um, sort of what that means, what those kind of factors are, and, yeah. and, and, and why? Because I think that's really important for people to understand. I think it's so important too. And I'm going to break it down uh, by introducing to some folks in your audience who may be listening to the sound of my voice and listening to this interview. I may be introducing them to this for the very first time. And, and then I might be just reiterating for those who already know that at Food Lab Detroit and many Detroiters, particularly coming out of a community like I do, we don't even use the word food desert. Mm -hmm. What we use is a more appropriate word, which is food apartheid, meaning yes. our neighborhoods yes. in the city of Detroit, our communities in the city of Detroit. And it's not only Detroit. It's communities that have been occupied with black and brown bodies all over this country, whether it's Detroit or whether it's Harlem or it's the Bronx or it's Oakland or it's parts of uh, Baltimore. You see, we live under food apartheid. And what that means and the reason why we don't use the word food desert is because desert is a natural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Cat having lack of access to fresh, healthy, affordable food is not natural, nor is it accidental. No. And this is what I want folks to understand. Many black communities that lack access to fresh, healthy, affordable food is the result of these structural inequalities. And what I mean by that is I'm talking about deliberate public and private policies and resources that have been misappropriated from, extracted from, not allocated to black and brown neighborhoods. I'm talking about policy decisions, Kat, that are being made that exclude the word healthy yes. from our community. And that kind of inequality cannot be described as anything else except food apartheid. So that desert metaphor, folks call our community food deserts, it's inappropriate. And also it's disrespectful. Yes. And the reason why I say it's inappropriate and disrespectful is because one of the things that I boast about all the time, and when you talk to Detroiters, many of us boast about the fact that because of the Great Migration, and the reason why I lifted that up earlier to give us some context, is because not only did African Americans flee the rural South and come to the North, but they brought with them skills. And the skill that they brought with them is their ability to grow food, their ability to cultivate the land. And as a result of, you know, we have seen, I've seen at least in my lifetime, I'm 50 years old, and I've seen in my lifetime my city of Detroit go from a population of almost 2 million people to now we hover around 700,000. Experts say that the city of Detroit, as a, as, a, as a result of its population decline and as people began to leave the city and move out to the suburbs, that our city is about a quarter to a third of acre. But the good news about that is that it is our elder, black folks and Hispanic folks who migrated to Detroit for a better opportunity, yes, to work for the big three, Ford, GM, and Chrysler, yes. But they also put into play their agricultural skills. And currently, right now, Detroit, Michigan, is probably the epicenter of urban agriculture in this country with over 1,600 community markets, schools, and family farms and gardens. So that desert metaphor is, is inappropriate. And it diverts attention from the real 
inequality and unjust conditions that we're seeing in our community. So what is food lab? So what 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 does food? Yeah. And so I spent a lot of time at imagining. And you know me, I ask the questions. Right? Yes, you do. Um, I'm, I'm so, out of time. And I gotta say me. how grateful I am that you you do that. That you Yeah, that, because I spent a lot of time doing that. Yeah. I spent a lot of time questioning systems. I spent a lot of time questioning why things are the way that they are, because mm-hmm. what I do know in the fifty years that I've been on this earth is that nothing happens by happenstance. No. Right? So I spend a lot of time imagining and asking far-reaching questions about public space and community resources and local policies that might create something new to fill these supposedly empty spaces that we have. And so rather than just inserting an out-of-town chain supermarket, which exports profits and tax dollars out of the community, mm-hmm. Food Lab spins and does the hard work around how do we cultivate a community, a network of good food businesses that are located in our communities that are actually owned by Detroiters. So we're asking the question around not only what does that look like from a health perspective, where we now have businesses, restaurants, small grocery stores or small community markets, or maybe we have a a, a, a parking lot with with food trucks or maybe we have uh, farmers markets or community markets like what does the ecosystem and the culture of health look like when we have actual business that are owned by Detroiters and so that could solve two problems that could solve the problem around having access to healthy fresh food culturally Mm -hmm. appropriate and then it could also solve the problem around giving people the opportunity to do what they love and experience economic freedom by doing because now they are business owners. And so what we know and that what research shows is that just by having proximation or being proximate to a well-stocked grocery store, that's not enough of a solution given this country's elaborate food problem. So we've got to think about this from two perspectives. Yes, healthy food, but how can we also ensure that people actually have the money that they need to be able to afford these healthy food items? And I want to go back to this, and you were saying, you know, culturally appropriate food. And I think that is really such an important thing that I want to talk about, because having the food that is sort of of your culture and of your experience and of your tradition and is healthy for you is a matter of dignity and and well-being yes, on is. so many different yes, levels and this is the thing that I, I sort of think about a lot is i mean this country has a, a hatred of of poor people it, it, and it, it's and it's oh. expressed in so many ways including in in this notion of sort of infantilizing people assuming oh what you know they don't know how to eat healthy or whatever but and and the denial you know, of access to this kind of food as well. But there's this sort of punitive thing where the food isn't, you know, it, it isn't as, com- it isn't the food that people are given access to isn't as complex. It isn't as nutritious. It isn't, you know, sort of all of these things. And it's, and it's sort of a, I, I've, I've read it as a, you know, shut up and enjoy, you know, be grateful for what you're given, but that's, that wounds the soul. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and at this particular time and place, and Detroit has been thinking about these things um, a long time ago. You see, and see what folks, 
um, should know about me as well is that not only do I identify as a first generation Detroiter, and I was uh, born and raised in Detroit as my hometown. I was born in 1969 in the northwest side of Detroit. Uh, Detroit was also um, a place for me where all I saw around me was amazing leadership and excellence with my mayor at the time was Mayor Coleman and Young. I went to school in the state, graduated from Michigan State University. But one of the things that folks should understand about me as well is that I was radicalized around this food movement a long time ago. Mm. So the radicalization um, for me started not only because my mother and, and their peers and neighbors always had, always had gardens in their backyard. And so there was nothing for me and my brother and my father to assist my mother because she of course is the matriarch of the family and she took lead but to assist my mother in planting of, of tomatoes and peppers and, and collard greens and, and turnip greens and, uh, and cucumbers and onions and so we have always or at least I have always grown up with a garden in the background yes of my life right so I know what it's like to have access to fresh food and then to have a mother and, and a father to build community in our home around the kitchen. But here's where this, this impacted me more so in the city of Detroit, and I became radicalized around food and healthy food. It happened in 2007 when every single national and gross, national and regional grocery store chain abandoned the city of Detroit. Yes. Right? And I can remember thinking, oh my goodness, we don't have access to a regional or national grocery store. They all had left. A&P had left. Farmer Jacks had left. Myers had left. Kroger's had left. They all had left. And I thought, what are we going to do? Right? And so, yes, there were independently owned grocery stores, but no national or regional grocery store chains here. And I can remember the elders saying that, let the grocery stores go. Let them leave the city of Detroit. We know how to grow in our own food. And cat, that to me, provided me the language that I have today, sitting at the footsteps of the elders and watching them grow in community gardens and family gardens and school gardens gave me the language that I have today, which is this aim for sovereignty and independence yes. and what that means. So at this moment, I'm thinking how many of communities are really taking the time right now particularly in black and brown communities where we know we are disproportionately affected by this virus and we understand that some of it leads to, yes, our own health, right? Whether it be diabetes or heart conditions or obesity, but more so structural issues. But what are we doing to develop an economy of place where we now can grow some of our own food developing skills aiming for sovereignty and independence, right? So what does that look like in our community where we're creating a culture of health? Farmers markets, community markets, urban farming, cooperative grocery stores, Black-owned healthy food business. And it is this that gives community members self-worth while being able to make a living doing something that enhances the entire community. And when we're able to do that, and this is the real power of Food Lab, is that when we're able to do that, we're able to create a narrative that speaks to the richness of and the richness provides an important guide for moving the story away from a narrative of lack, like a fruit desert, yes. a narrative of lack. And it leads us toward a deeper understanding of the multiple causes and possible solutions to the crises of food access. In the so and that's our work. I think that's, oh God, I've, I've got chills. And uh, I, I want to 
delve into a little bit about the education process uh, for this, because you were saying, you know, you have this generational knowledge that was, you know, brought from your parents and they received from their parents. What is, how is that conveyed to younger people? Um, Do you, are you, do you have classes? Do you have apprenticeships? How is this knowledge being uh, passed along to ensure a future for what you're doing? What is the, just the, the makeup of that? Because yeah. I think people listening to this may be listening you know, from a different community and looking around and thinking, hey, we could take what you know, they've learned there. And you have a sister city in Sydney, I believe. And, you know, how do yeah, you, absolutely. Yeah. And how do you take these lessons and apply it where, uh, where you are? So what is that process like? Look, look, like I love, I love that question. And so I would be remiss to not um, start to now kind of drop names of organizations who do I it. absolutely love, Please. who I <laughs> folks to do some research on so they can get a better understanding of the larger, broader, in the, in the breadth of the ecosystem here in Detroit. So I will mention, to answer your question, kind of three organizations that I love. One is Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, where Baba Malik Bikini is the executive director of DCB uh, SFN. And then another organization is um, Oakland Avenue Farms, where Mama Jerry and Bron is, and, and notice my reverence for my elders, I call them Baba Malik and, and Mama Jerry, right? Because this is how we speak to and we respect mm-hmm. and we regard the knowledge of our elders. So where Mama Jerry Hebron is over at Oakland Avenue. And then a dear friend of mine, my sister friend, um, her name is Ashley Atkinson, and she is um, one of the co-directors uh, of an organization called Keep Growing Detroit. And the, one of the things that I love about all of those organizations that I just named is that they all have a apprenticeship program where a part of their practice and a part of their programming and a part of their work is to work directly with our youth. And so one of the things that I love about DPCFSN is that they have a one of the baddest, baddest youth programs, and we call them our little food warriors. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I love them. How old these, are these babies children? are. They are about. Oh my goodness! I'm going to say they probably start maybe as young as maybe six or seven or maybe oh. eight, and they go all the way up until they're into their teens. And they are sitting at the footsteps of this whole educational program Mm -hmm. that's designed to teach our young people about in in, uh, Detroit Black Community Food Security Network has the largest um, urban farm in the city of Detroit, which I think hovers around seven to eight acres. Right. And so they have an, an, an intensive, a deep program that is dedicated to um, our young people that revolves around farming, that revolves around cooking that revolves around taking the produce that they grow to create added value products where they might even be able to become entrepreneurs themselves. It requires them to understand uh, they also do a farmer's market. They also do community fairs. And, and so these young people, they are, um, they have a program there uh, for them that is absolutely amazing. Oakland Avenue Farm does the exact same thing. They have a program for the young folks there. Um, and I know they bring on interns, they bring on young people during the summer. As a matter of fact, they pay these young folks, oh. though. So it's a part of their business model, yes. right, to make sure that our young people are getting paid for doing work um, that is on the farm. So they're being exposed to, to farming. 
um, in, in growing their own food and then being able to love the produce and the vegetables that they're eating. Um, and then, of course, Keep Growing Detroit does the absolute same thing with its young people. So we understand two things. We understand that it's important to build a pipeline, the next generation of, of, of growers. Um, and we also understand that it is important to dismantle some of the trauma that sits in our hearts, that sits in our stomachs, that sits in our belly around black people putting their hands in the dirt. I want trauma that is associated with and tagged to slavery. Right. That's traumatic for more. I don't want to be a slave. I'm not working in the farm. Mm -hmm. My ancestors. So we want to flip the script, change the narrative and rewrite the story around how farming and putting your hands in the dirt is healed. How powerful that is. And farming snatches back that power and puts the power in, in your hand. We got to educate our young people around that. And they do an amazing job. Doing that. I, uh, this is actually what I, I wanted to get to next, because I, I spent a lot of time um, when uh, like talking to uh, of course, I'm blanking on the man's name in Atlanta who does all the incredible work with the, the with the farming there and trying to because there is so much trauma because I, you know I keep you talk about these the sort of these lines of this you know generational you know healing and activism but there is the trauma there is the pain it is it is marrow deep in in there and that's got to be such an emotional uh, process. And I'm thinking with kids who are growing up now, because, you know, because people are so reliant on technology for communication and might feel some sort of, when you're physically distanced from people who you are interacting with, even before this pandemic, there creates this sort of divide and things become less tactile. And, uh, you know, and I, I see some of this online where then people uh, maybe something comes through with a, a lack of connection with other humanity and also with things that you can touch. How do, like, what are the actual physical exercises to get the, the, the young people feeling okay with this very physical activity, with getting your hands dirty, with getting past that, that trauma and shame uh, that is so often associated with, with agriculture, especially in the black community? Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if the farmer you're, you're speaking about, um, in Atlanta is, um, a farmer who is, is, you know, one of our elders who has a deep connection, um, that comes up often is, I'm a farmer's name is K. Rashid Nuri. Yes. Um, that would be him. <laughs> so I'm having pandemic yes. brain, which is why I couldn't pull it from there, but that yeah. is exactly we, when I when I worked at CNN, we did a lot of Atlanta stories and he was very much at the the heart of so much of it. Exactly. And 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 and, and the reason why I know um um Nuri is because we in, in the city of Detroit is this connection um, this, this focal point. And so not only do we see our, our elders kind of in the fields and, and working and creating this delicious produce, um, and, and farming, and then we have amazing chefs, um, in the city of Detroit that are cooking this amazing, uh, produce as well. It is, it is about changing the narrative. Mm -hmm. That's our job. Here's the thing is that if only our young people are reading these antiquated history books mm -hmm. that teaches them probably around the time of February, around Black History Month, mm -hmm. that the only thing Blacks were were capable of doing 
and able to do was to use their bodies, yeah. their bones, and yes, their blood, sweats, and tears to, to, to build out the agricultural ecosystem of this country, right? Which we know is the foundation of wealth creation. Like we understand that black and brown bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Created wealth. And if that's all they hear, yeah. then yes, they would, uh, they would attribute that, right? To being lesser than. Yeah. But if we begin to flip the script and talk about the importance of how black and brown folks kind of laid the foundation of this country's agricultural history and from that created a food ways that cannot separate itself from the food that black and brown people have grown and begin to introduce the entire ecosystem that not only were we farmers, not only did we take the produce that we grow, but we were also some of the most amazing cooks and chefs yes. and farmers. And not only that is that we also use the same type of grain that we grew to also become distillers. We made beer and we made alcohol and we did like you have to tell the whole story so that so that instead of being ashamed of who you are and where you come from, mm-hmm. it becomes a sense of pride. It becomes a and it also becomes a point of resilience to understand. And I and I use that word with a little trepidatiousness because I don't really like the word resiliency, mm-hmm. but I, but what I want young people to understand, and it's because the older generation has told me this, Pat, that as bad as this pandemic is, as much as black folks have been disproportionately affected by this virus, yeah. and it is true, Pat, you have to understand this ain't even our worst. You understand black people in this country have seen days worse than COVID-19. Yes. And we got through. And we got through that. And I want young people to understand what I understand. The same God. And I don't care what your spiritual practice is. But the same spirit. That got our ancestors through. Will get us through. It will. And so I don't want people to take this moment. And be despaired by this moment. I want them to take this moment. And become radicalized by this moment. Now is the time you should be asking yourself. What is it that I am called to do in this moment? Because we are writing a new chapter in American history. The old way of doing things are are of no more. We're writing, so what is going to be your contribution to the new chapter? I'm ready, Kat. I'm ready. And I'm surrounding myself with people who have the vision or who, who are aspiring to, who have the passion, the dedication, who have the foresight, who want to understand that they are a part of America's tomorrow. And I'm, and I'm surrounding myself with people who are literally right now strategizing around writing the future. And so, and so that's, 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 that's where I am. And that gets, I, I, that gets me up every morning too, because I'm around people who motivate and inspire me all the time. And so that, that's, that's where my head is. I mean, food access is power. It is freedom. It is autonomy. It is dignity. It is culture. It is connection. It is, it is all of those things. And, you know, I, and I, you know, everything that you're saying 
the thing that the pandemic has done has, you know, laid bare the, you know, the foundation, the, the very uh, rocky, shaky, holy, like, holy as in assholes and it not holy, God wouldn't do this, um, foundation that uh, all of this was built on and whose whose backs it was it was built on. And, and the thing I have to have is hope that this is this, this moment of, of, of reckoning and hope and, and forward motion. And, and part of that is, you know, we've been talking about growing the food and I want to talk about the next step of that, which is then empowering the businesses to, to sell the food, to process the food, to make what they make out of it, to cook the food and getting that level of, uh, of, um, you know, economic, uh, stability in there as as well, and I want to talk about um, how that happens within what you're doing, how um, yeah, how people are empowered through that, and uh, you know, and and also sort of you know where the education uh, comes in on that, and also I know this is a million things at once, but also how, how people can get capitalized to do that because this is you know, a, 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 again, a matter of economic injustice, but how can you talk about that particular process sort of from field to store or field to commerce or, or something like that so people can get access to the food? Yeah. yeah. Ooh, that's such a big question. That's such a big, big question. Um, and it requires such a big, big, big conversation. Yeah. And so when I talk about, when I talk about this new normal, and when I talk about this is our opportunity to write the next chapter in America's future, I think one of the things that my granddaddy used to always talk about, he always used to preach about, is that you don't know where you're going unless you know from whence you come. Yeah. And so what I say about that is that we have to be really clear about the systems that did not work. So that we don't replicate at those same systems. Yes. You understand? So when we're talking about, you know, um, how do we create the infrastructure? How do we create the businesses? How do we create a, a, a financial model, yeah. right, to facilitate the ecosystem so we can move food from the field and we can move it through the ecosystem? We can move it through the supply chain. We can move it so that we are actually getting healthy, fresh food mm -hmm. to people. We gotta think. We have to understand where what the system looks like. Where were the inequalities built in? Where were the oppressions built into the systems? And then we have to make sure we don't replicate. Yeah. But Kat, I'm afraid. I am too. Can I just? I'm afraid. Yeah. Because while you and I are talking and while I'm on the phone with friends and family and people who I love strategizing, there are other people that want things to go back to how they were when they're strategizing too. We also. And so one of the things that your listeners know. Um, and people who are listening to us are clear about um, or have associated with the state of Michigan. In, in my state, in my state, one of the things that have been talked about, and I think talked about too much, is this storyline that keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. And that's the storyline that clearly shows these militia groups mm. that are storming our capital. And that's problematic. And it's problematic is because people need to understand that this narrative has been created by design. And that there are so many people who are complicit in orchestrating this narrative 
that they want us to think this logic. They want us to think this following way, right? This is the importance of this story. And I think we need to lift this up as we talk about what this new normal is going to be. We need to talk about the fact that there are people who want us to go back to the way things were. So here's what they want us to think. And they keep showing us these pictures Mm -hmm. of folks that are storming the capitals all over the country, demanding that they want to work. Here's the logic. If the shutdown has produced joblessness, right? And joblessness is causing misery. That means that we have to end the shutdown. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's just that simple, right? Because that's it. People are saying that the shutdown is producing, producing joblessness and joblessness is causing misery. And so we have to end it. But Pat, that's too simple. Yep. And when we think simple, sometimes we think stupidly. We're not really looking at the larger picture. So the argument is premised on the idea that the economic misery people are suffering right now is unavoidable. Mm-hmm. It's an unavoidable effect of shutting down parts of the economy, Cat. but I am here to tell you that that is a lie. But it's what people want you to believe. They want you to think that government has caused all your troubles by imposing this economic shutdown, but that's not true. The government has imposed an economic shutdown without introducing the kinds of policies that would make a shutdown tolerable. And this is where we come to writing a new normal and creating systems and financial models, particularly for restaurants, right? Yes. So that we can get, we can move food. So the United States of America had a choice. It's had many choices. Number one, I think that it has done an absolute abysmal job of protecting people's employment. This country cat could have simply paid salaries during the crisis like every or or many other countries did. Mm -hmm. But they made a choice not to do that. Why? Because you talked about the ideology. You talked about the fact that there's a pathology in this country, particularly in our government, that they hate poor people and they hate handouts to poor people cat more than they hate the poor but they'll give handouts to billionaires and millionaires and corporate companies every day we saw that through ppp right we saw that giving giving handouts to companies that didn't even need it can access capital in other places right when we start talking about how can we refocus our efforts to ensure that this country opens back up and i use the word open but begins to uh, not only have a choice of following the social safety, the, the, the safety in that what the public experts are telling us while mitigating the economic crisis is that we have choices to make. And so we can't even begin to have those discussions, Kat, because if we talk about handouts or if we talk about having a national health insurance system mm-hmm. or we talk about eating into corporate profits, conversation shuts down. So, so what then, Kat, does restaurants begin to look like, right? What does a model of a restaurant begins to look like? And how much of a um, help could government be to our friends and chefs and restaurateurs if they knew that they did not have to have, they, and, and listen, Chef, Kat, you know, and I know because we love this industry so much, we know restaurateurs who are friends and chefs who are friends who absolutely love their staff. Yes. And they're just as mad and pissed off as we are that they don't have right now in this country, we don't have a model for most the majority of restaurants that allows them to have a profitable restaurants and be able to pay their 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 workers without tips, right? right. To pay them a, a, a wage, right, that they could deserve without tips. But can't even, in many cases, 
like afford to pay them health care. But what if we had nationalized health care in this country? Where, where restaurateurs and chefs were assured, not even for themselves. I know chefs and restaurateurs who own businesses and they don't even have good oh, health care uh, themselves. Yeah, I know very few and, who do. So could you imagine? <laughs> could you imagine having a nationalized health care system in this country where everyone was afforded the opportunity to have good quality health care? And what a relief that would be for small business owners who, 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 who wrestle with that every day. It would change could you imagine what, what, how that could turn restaurants around? Could you imagine if we began to question what does a profitable restaurant, what does that mean? And do restaurants can't even have to be profitable? We're seeing right now through the feed program or the feed act, right? So Jose Andres was just on a, uh, the, the vice president Biden just had a, a food insecurity, uh, town hall or he had at least had a, a panel discussion where chef Jose Andres was, was on the call with the vice president talking about the thousands of restaurants right now that are operating. That have that have workers that are getting paid right now that are operating as commissary kitchens. We've got restaurants right now who have turned their restaurants into commissary kitchens that are feeding our most vulnerable population, feeding workers on the front lines. What does it look like for a restaurant to not be profitable? Is there a business can it can operate? Can restaurants operate as nonprofits? Hell, I know many of them probably operate as nonprofits already. <laughs> they do, right? Right? No, no, I'm I'm serious. I, I, like, what does do that look? What is it? What is? Go, go ahead, Kat. I was just saying because and and restaurant people are the very first people who, in any kind of crisis, whether it's natural or man-made, are the people on the front lines who are going out there. How do I get everybody fed? They just they roll up with a smoker and some cambros or whatever it is that they need. Don't they? They, <laughs> they, 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 get, they get food in in mouths and baby, I, uh, it, baby. I mean, you can give you give a chef some food. They they can make it happen. They may, so then you have to ask yourself like, what does a restaurant look like without the confines of a brick and mortar where they're paying their landlord? And I understand landlords have a a, a business model on their own. I understand that many landlords, uh, you know, they don't technically own the building. The banks own the building. Many of them might be over leveraged themselves. Like I understand that, right? I understand that we are a part of a larger, broader ecosystem. Let me tell you something, Kat. Like if you give money and you pour a, a, a stimulus package or you pour relief into a restaurant, do you understand that I can probably guarantee you that every dollar that goes into a restaurant, 90 cents probably goes out? Do you know oh, yeah. how many vendors, how many people, how many other industries we support? Do you understand that? Fishermen, farmers, florists that we support, linens, uh, 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 who, who makes uh, packaging equipment for our carryout packages, you know, disposable napkins and knives and for, I mean, the landlords that we pay. I mean, seriously, restaurants pay so many people. Just making sure the restaurants stay alive can fuel so many other industries that are part of the restaurant ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, so we have to ask ourselves, like, what does a restaurant then look like without the confines of being in a brick and mortar? What does that look like? I want to see this because I've seen how my friends have transformed their restaurants uh, during this time if they've been able to reopen. I have some friends who are working with uh, with uh, Chef Andres in uh, New Orleans, and they immediately got out there. And as they said, you know, we're Cajun. We can make food last and make it, you know, we can just get a little bit of food and we exactly. can feed so many people. But of course, they, they were feeding frontline workers. They were feeding laid off hospitality people, but they they are finding this this sense of, of purpose. They've always, people go into the restaurant industry because they like to 
serve other people. A life of service is right. is such a, a beautiful and special and undervalued thing that, uh, you know, people in, in this country, I think, have gotten very uh, used to what they think a restaurant should cost um, because it's so there's so many invisible people who who work in a in a restaurant and i think so yeah. much of this is laying bare like all of the the labor and the hands and the hearts and the souls and the humanity and the families of the people who are actually making this food happen so you can sit down and have a nice damn meal and exactly i want my dream is exactly yeah i mean the the thing that i really would like is you know in the future of, of this, that, you know, the people who are, you know, in the back and stuff are as lauded as the person whose name is on the marquee or the menu or whatever it happens to be, because it doesn't happen without them. It does not. And here's what I would like to have. This is what I would like to have. And like, and so, you know, I, I, I am in the ecosystem um, here in Detroit around um, a movement building. And, and when I say, you know, Detroit is this, this, this hotbed has always been the center of movement building is that we in the city of Detroit understand the importance of, of organizing. And it could be because our history around labor, around organizing is rooted as a result of the automobile industry and the United Auto Workers. So we know um, the importance of what it takes, right, to have a labor movement um, that galvanizes this country. And so not only do I want to make sure that, you know, our back of house workers and our front of house workers are just as important and recognized as the um, the executive chef or, or the restaurateur. Like, I think that's important. But I also think that it is incumbent upon us to do as much work as we can around educating consumers. Listen, mm -hmm. when we come out of this, consumers need to understand that you can't, that there is a price that we have to pay. Yes. There is a value proposition that you, that aligns with your own personal values when you choose to go out and buy a Popeye's chicken sandwich for $3.99. You need to understand, like in order to get you that chicken sandwich at $3.99, how many bodies yes. have been oppressed as a result of that, right? You need to understand that there's a difference between the $3.99 chicken at, at Popeye's and the $11 chicken meal that you'll get at Egg by my friend Evan, who's the owner of Egg in Brooklyn. Like, there is a difference. And consumer, you need to make the value choice. Like, who, what do you, you love your restaurants? Like, you, you, you are longing for them now. You want them around now. We'll love them when we begin to reshape and change the restaurant industry. And that means is that consumers may have to pay a little bit more money for for your steak or you know for your 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 your, your the food that's on the menu whatever whatever that may be your hamburger your your, your chicken your, your your cob salad whatever that looks like it your, these prices going to have to increase because i know i have talked to too many chefs and too many restaurateurs who said i am not vita i'm not going back to normal <laughs> i'm gonna figure out a way i'm gonna figure out a model on how to take care of my people Yes. And so this, 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 this might show up in menu prices. And I just want to warn people, it, it may show up like there was an excellent article and I can't recall the name of it, uh, that just that had a menu and then it asked the question, would consumers we be willing to pay this amount? And they scratched out, you know, the, the price and they wrote in pencil, like what it would cost, that particular menu item would cost if the uh, business model of the restaurant ensured that their salary workers were paid wages that they did not rely on tips to be subsidized by their customers and that they paid their staff 
health insurance and what it looked like when they have a staff that had paid time off, they had sick leave, and they had health insurance, and they calculated this menu and in the, in, in the cost of each item as a result of that. And so the question is consumers. This can't happen without consumer demand for consumers to start asking questions. Like, I love your restaurant. This is great. Oh, you guys make my favorites, you know, mm -hmm. my favorite pasta. How are you guys treating your staff? Mm -hmm. Extra server. Are, is this, are, how are you? Do you, do you get paid? You know, do you have health insurance? Yeah. You know? Extra, extra favorite bartender. You get, you get paid time off. Start asking questions. Open up your mouth and ask about the staff and the people. See them. See them. Then ask about them. Because the only way this changes if consumers start making cognizant choices to say, you know what, I, I, I want to align my dollar with my value. And that means looking at my budget and say, you know what, I may not be able to go out three times a week. But I'm going to spend my money maybe once every Friday night or once every other Saturday or that time in which I now want to go out, you know, and get a great meal. But I'm going to spend my dollars with the restaurant that I know that are taking care of its staff. Yeah. That's ensuring that farmers are, are getting the appropriate wages for the beautiful produce that they grow. And when consumers start making that cognizant choice, restaurants who aren't doing that, will be irrelevant and they won't be able to survive because there's such an overwhelming demand from restaurants who are doing it the right way. There's, and I want us to start making that choice. I absolutely agree with you. And I, I, I've been galled for the last 24 hours or, or so that it is that you were not at that table at the White House yesterday. I mean, Maybe you don't want to be in proximity to various people at the table, but that you were saying that you were afraid before, and that that the visual of that room made me afraid uh, because the the voices that were absent from that room, who are presenting, you know, the the points of view, the, these very human points of view, and you know, and I know some information has to be presented in a way that. <sighs> you know, coddles the palate of the people making the decisions currently. And, and yeah. I hate that. Um, so I sort of saw, you know, some of the behavior that was sort of called out yesterday. I was like, I understand that. And at the same time, I understand why certain things were phrased the way they were, because it's the only way to get through to that man is to flatter his ass. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absence yeah. of of uh, voices of women of people of color of uh, the you know people representing sort of as you know more small local independently owned places was what really gave me pause and concern. And do you see other efforts uh, out there that you think could maybe counterweight what was happening in that room yesterday and offer other perspective and where and like who do you see um, being able to you know have some sort of power and voice and advocacy in the same way where they can circumvent that room yeah yeah i love that you asked that question and and, 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 and as disgusted as i was <laughs> by the visual of that room here's what i know here's what i know as as an african-american woman who sits in the city of detroit who it has been who has been 
radicalized, who's been inspired, um, who's who has been had the privilege of having her my my body wrapped up in in our elders and understands our history. Because what I know, Kat, is that change, sweetie, comes from the bottom up, not the top down. Mm-hmm. And so what happened in that room happened in that room. But I'm more concerned about creating the change that we want by mobilizing, by organizing the people. And what I mean by that, Kat, is that one of the things that has inspired me from day one, like I kind of knew it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's close to this industry, like you and I know, we kind of understood what, what would happen as a result of that. And that is, as soon as restaurants were mandated to close and could only operate from delivery or carry out or curbside, that friends uh, who are chefs and restaurateurs who we know whose restaurants were uh, clo- had their had their dining room closed. And as soon as we knew that this pandemic not only was affecting folks' health. This was a health crisis, Mm -hmm. but it became an economic crisis. If people were going hungry, we could have probably written a book because we knew that chefs would do what they always Mm -hmm. do, and that's leap into action. Because the community that I know, the community that I love in this industry are a community of doers. They cannot, for the life of them, (laughs) sit their behinds down. They can't sit still. (laughs) Oh my goodness, they just can't. They always have to be doing something, even if it means putting their own bodies, my God. Uh, Oh my God. And so what I have seen as inspiring is this, what, what, what has been lifted up is this mutual aid and solidarity. Yes. Right? When you see, when, when you see chefs are like, they're hungry people. What? Where? (laughs) Okay. Somebody go and get me some, some beans. Somebody go get me a a, a a a a bag of frozen this and somebody and and and, and they can put them in. They they're hungry people. Yeah. They automatically are like, we got to feed people. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we have to do. And so seeing chefs leap into service yeah. of other people, that's what solidarity looks like. And understanding that we now are at a moment where we can actually begin to build a movement like a movement that I've never seen before, where you now actually having chefs that are becoming radicalized, chefs who are becoming chef activists. And so you got chefs who are activating and advocating around policy for businesses, right? With what that means, tweaking and revising the PPP, extending it for maybe eight weeks. So I heard like 24 mm-hmm. weeks. So you got those folks on the business side who are coming together. Maybe that's the IRC, right? Who are advocating for businesses. You got folks like Chef Jose Andres who are advocating around how do we use restaurants, our knowledge, our skills, and ability to feed people and passing things like the Feed Act. You got chefs that are on the ground that are forming these independent, like, um, kind of lobbying groups in Chicago and in Detroit and down in Nashville and in Portland who are now organ, chefs are organizing. I'm like, wait a minute. Y'all becoming activists now? Like, what? Like, what's happening? Like, David, how do we do this movement building thing? Like, how do, like, how do we advocate for ourselves? And I'm thinking to myself, my God, like, this is like, this is a moment, Kat. It is. Like, this is a moment that on the ground, chefs and restaurateurs are talking to each other before, like they had never talked to each other in the past. 
they, you know, I'm on the phone with chefs and restaurateurs all the time. I was on the phone with, uh, with, 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 I'm not going to get into this with, with the article, but I was on the phone a couple of weeks ago for about an hour and a half with my dear brother, Eric Williams. Eric is like, Davida, I, we talked to everybody. Like, you know, he was like, I'm on the phone talking to this chef in Chicago, that chef in New Orleans, you know, uh, you know, a, another close friend of mine who I call my nephew, George Azar, who owns Flowers of Vietnam. George and I were talking to, you know, Chef Eric, uh, 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 Bronner Yang in, in yes. DC. Okay. About his program. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you got, I mean, listen, we on Zoom calls, we're <laughs> chatting and we're trying to get things done. I'd never seen this before. Listen, never. The types of conversations, the type of movement building and that, but they don't understand that's what they're doing, right? They don't understand <laughs> that what they're doing is organizing. They don't know that. Right. They don't have that language. They just know they're trying to get things done. I'm like, y'all, you understand that these are the foundations for building a movement. That's what we're doing. And so and so when I see this mutual aid and when I see the solidarity and I see it at on the ground, my God, I'm immediately harking back to probably the most famous example of mutual aid and solidarity, particularly out of the black community that I've ever seen. And that's probably the black Panther. Yes. Right. Would provided free breakfast and free healthcare clinics in the late 60s and 70s for black working class communities. And the reason why I lift them up, it is because of the Black Panther Party and their free breakfast program and their free healthcare clinics, they drove policy on the federal level. The federal government was so embarrassed by what we were able to do in community that they actually took the program and they nationalized it. How do you think we came with a, fee, a, a, a breakfast program for children in this country? It started through the Panthers. And so what I'm saying is that maybe it won't happen with this administration, but grassroots movement building has the ability to shape policy even on the federal level. So let them sit at the table and talk with their white linen tablecloths <laughs> around the table, right, yeah. in the White House. We are creating movements that will not be ignored. Right? And so I think change comes from the bottom up and not you know, I was I, I did a podcast recently with Rachel Ray, and I think we declared that in the new administration that you were head of communications <laughs> for for it. Oh my goodness! We we were. I just I just I just no. I just call it like I, I just call it like 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 I see it, and I and I know I probably have a particular vantage point, and I have a particular point of view. Um, but it is my point of view is just wrapped up in so much inspiration, so much motivation, so much. I, I that's what I just I I don't know. I just believe it in my heart of hearts. I guess it's in my spirit that I you know I think it comes from being a part of a a, a family that believes in just uh just the the message of being able to be a prophet or or at least prophesize to the people about all is not in despair. And I just, I, I, that's just the, I come from that, come, come from that kind of a family. And that's just, that's just what I see. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I, I just so believe in, in, in the people. Um, and because I'm seeing it and I'm around it every day. And I, I just have so much hope and inspiration, uh, around what we can do if we just link arms and, and work together and talk together. And understood as my elders tell me all the time that cat, you may be um, a white woman and I may be a black woman and we have friends from other ethnicities. But the fact of the matter is 
our liberations is bound to one another. And if people understood that if I'm not free, DeVita, a black woman in Detroit, if I'm not free, you're not free either. Because here's the reality. The coronavirus may have disproportionately affected African Americans today, but it ain't all. No. It's not. It's not. And so while you may be sitting at your favorite restaurant in Georgia saying that, oh, I don't have any problems, I don't have any worries, you see the demographics of who's being disproportionately affected. It's not our demographic. It's not today. It's not today. But please understand that what affects the least of these will eventually affect your community as well. You can't run away from can't just say, I'm going to move out of the inner city. I'm going to get as far away from those <laughs> black and brown people as possible. Yeah. The problem won't creep into your gated community. It won't come creeping around your little cul-de-sac. Okay? It won't come tiptoeing into your manicured lawn, detachable garage, attached garage, you know, mini mansions. It will. Some way form of Came in the Oval Office. So until folks understand that we are all bound together, we'll not we'll never understand what freedom and liberation. But I have to believe that there are folks that are aspiring. Well, this question coming from me is not going to be a surprise to you. Um, The work that you are 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 doing. Uh, I want people to under, who are listening to this to understand that the work and these conversations and all of this is labor. It is labor, and mm. as you know, and as as much as it may fuel people and fuel you and fuel all that kind of stuff, it at the same time takes a toll. It takes something from that battery. It takes you know, it, it, it just, it takes a lot of work. And I want to know when you are doing uh, work like this, uh, where, you know, there is trauma associated with it and there are long hours and there are sleepless nights and all of this for people who do want to do this work. There are people who have been doing it for a very, very long time. And I think that this particular point in time has radicalized people. So we'll see even more people uh, doing it. How do you take care of yourself while you're taking care of others in that airplane kind of way, put your own mask on before helping others. What are the things that you are doing to sustain yourself for the long haul and take care of, of your mind, heart, body? So that's a great question. I knew you <laughs> I should have I'm predictable. Answer. I don't. Uh, so this is, Basically, my heart. The the truth of the matter is, Kat, is that I've made a lot of sacrifices. So I, and I think that's what has made me more determined. Dare I say, legacy? Because I am encroaching. I'm closer to the end than I am the beginning. And, you know, I'm 50 years old, but I'm closer now to 60 and 70 than I am. I'm not that far behind you. <laughs> so when you, and so when you, when you get this age, you start to think a little bit different. And you start to think about a song that my, my mother sang, the choir, 
song is, is my living in the future? So I have to ask myself, I don't have any children. Thank God every day um, that my brother um, has a four-year-old, my niece, and my mother finally got they have been wanting for 75 years of, of their life. Mommy, 75 they got Thank God. <laughs> so thank, thank God my brother had uh, a four, uh, 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 a little girl. Her name is Aaliyah. She's four. Oh. The reason why I mentioned Aaliyah is because Cat, I was sitting a couple years back, someone asked me, Davida, the work that you're doing in Detroit, how do you know when you look back over your life and your work, how do you know if it's been successful? How do you want your, your work to impact the city of Detroit? What is your vision for Detroit? How does your work impact that? And I simply answered as a new auntie, I answered that question by saying this, is that I want to live in a city and I work to live in a city that loves its children and respects its And the work that I do today and what fuels me, what propels me, is the vision that I have around doing the work in a city so that my niece does not grow up in a community that is food insecure, or who grows up understanding the power of food, who understands that her auntie and her grandparents, and her mother and her father and the elders that went before her thought so much about her, that we did the work to ensure she has access, quality, healthy food, fuels her body. And then to live in the city, that loves its elders so much that Food Lab Detroit is an organization that helps to cultivate and create a community, a network, not only restaurateurs, but also chefs. Chefs who not just want to go into restaurants, but who also want to maybe go into prisons mm -hmm. or maybe to go into nursing homes and use their expertise, not only for the glory and fame of being a a chef restaurateur, but also want to care for people so that not another great aunt like mine has to die in a nursing home. Yeah. What does that mean? That vision, that clarity, Kat, is what tells me. That is what motivates me in the work that I do, is that what kind of impact is the work that DeVita does today that is going to be long-lasting and has impact on our young people in our elders? And if I can't get up every morning and know that I am having an impact for the future, then I need to stop. And so the sacrifice is, is that I'm not married. And I don't have any. And I don't say that for folks to feel sorry for me. I'm just that, that's just the kind of person I am. I'm I, I love what I do. Mm -hmm. And 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 because of that, I wouldn't be able to give my full self. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to give all of myself, understanding that I would have to, you know, th there are sacrifices to be quite out as that parents make, right? Or that spouses make. And so and so for me, 
the choice has been made that this is how I choose to pour into other people. This is my service. This is my servant's leadership. This is how I choose to be of service to my larger, broader community. With that, sacrifices. Choices had to be. So my choice is to live a life that I can give of myself fully. That I don't have to, I don't have to worry about parenting. And I don't, you know, necessarily have the responsibilities of being someone's partner. But on the flip side of that, I also am a part of a community that is centered around food. So, Kat, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? So, I, don't... I think... Like, give me, I, I love seeing y'all, you know, with your videos and people are learning how to cook and people are in there. I don't... Kat, let me tell you, I don't... I, I, I'm not even going to lie to you, sis. I'm, I, don't, I don't cook it. Like I got, I, listen, I know too many chefs. I know, I know, not know too many cooks. Um, and I can, you know, put money in too many pockets for people to, to do meal prep and meal delivery for me. I don't, I don't even worry about that. I, I just don't. And, and so, and so, you know, listen, I guess a perk is, is that because of the people who I surround myself with, the people who I love and the people who love me, they make sure I'm fed. I don't like my, listen, I have two elderly parents right now who are, are here in, in Michigan. Uh, with me and my mother and father, both their world centers around food. And my mother wakes up wondering what we're going to have for breakfast, <laughs> lunch, and dinner. I don't cook a thing. Not one thing do I, do I cook and, and eat well every, every day. Um, and take care of myself, uh, uh, my friends and folks who are listening, who, who are friends of mine and follow me on Instagram know that I, I run, you know, two, three miles, uh, you know, every, every morning. So of course, you know, being physically fit helps me. You know, helps me lose some of this some of this weight, girl. Uh, but it also helps to center me, and it also gives me clarity as well. That is that is that is my altar, uh, that that treadmill or, or that pavement. That's why I I, just, I leave it on the road. I leave it on the treadmill, and I begin to start my day. Um, and knowing that when I finish running, you know, mommy or daddy or somebody will have you know have food for me, and I I just I just know that's coming. I don't know what I'm gonna eat, but I just know I'm gonna eat something. I feel like everybody listening to this is just going to start leaving uh, food at your door, <laughs> beautiful meals. And stuff. Okay, I I can, well, I'm thankful for this conversation, for the work you always do, for um, folks listening to this. David has got an essay in our July restaurant issue that I cannot wait for folks to hear because you maybe you knew her before maybe you've fallen in love with her right now but you're going to be able to have her words um in in your hands in this issue and just thank you for all of this so much and thanks for shining the light on these on your new uh bncs oh, I you mean, have been in, in detroit <laughs> lena yes we do hey shout out to lena absolutely oh. we do i mean these are going to be the future makers of tomorrow i mean these are the game changers right here so there is no better time to celebrate what our future is going to look like with this next cohort of best new chefs. They're all just simply amazing. Oh. Um, so absolutely, shout out to Krishna who did an oh, excellent Krishna's job. great. Traipsing back and forth <laughs> um, from the north to the south, the east to the west, all over the country, just finding an amazing cohort of best new chefs who are going to shape uh, this industry as well. So talent is here. The skill yeah. is here. Passion is here. We got this, Kat. We got it. Thank you so much to our guest today, uh, Davida Davison. I'll include all of her social handles in the information around this podcast. And again, this comes up at 
you know, an especially relevant time. She's she and her colleagues have been doing the work all along. But what we are seeing in our country right now is the direct result of these inequitable systems that have been in place for a very, very long time. And it is a it's an incredibly difficult uh, time in our nation. And it's been damn difficult for uh, communities of color um, this whole time. And I'm so grateful to have people like uh, Davida and her team at Food Lab Detroit, who are working in very practical ways to make sure that we're building a better system for people moving forward. Um, this this isn't an anomaly. This is the result of years and years of systemic inequity and oppression. And, you know, as you could tell during the podcast, we were getting pretty emotional because uh, this is, you know, this is something, food access is something that is just so fundamental and deep and should be a human right. And I'm, again, I'm so grateful to the work that she is doing. And if you are inspired by what she said and uh, you live near Detroit, get involved with her. Um, if you don't live there, take a note from what they are doing. Um, Davida is so incredible about sharing information and, and systems and organization. And, uh, you know, you can take from uh, what they have learned in their work so far and apply it to communities everywhere. And this is my hope that out of you know, the the intense pain that everybody is, is feeling right now, that there is action, that there is a more equitable future, a just future, a future where people have access not to just feed themselves, but to thrive in doing so and to benefit from the new systems that are being created. So thank you so much for listening. Please help out uh, where you can. And uh, if you want to keep track of these stories that are happening um, in in the food world, how they're affecting restaurants, how they're affecting farmers, how how everything is is happening, um, you know, not just with the current uh, protests, but with COVID-19 and and just the world in general. Um, take a look at Food and Wine Pro. It is the section of foodandwine.com uh, where we really talk specifically about the industry and systems of the food world and try to highlight the voices of the people who are trying to make a difference during all of this. So it's foodandwine.com slash fwpro. And if you really want to keep track of what's going on, please sign up for the Food and Wine Pro newsletter. That is written by our editor-in-chief, Hunter Lewis, helped out by uh, associate restaurant editor, Osset Babur, and me. And we bring you uh, the most relevant news of the week. You can um, see whatever the most recent podcast is. There are words of wisdom from our glorious Kelsey Youngman certified meditation instructor and uh, excellent human in our test kitchen. And she provides a weekly mantra that she shares at our our, uh, team meeting every week. So thank you so much to our team here on the podcast side, Jennifer Martnick, Hallie Tarpley, and our extraordinary photo editor, Sarah Crowder. And, uh, you know, we're all trying our best from home. This is recorded from my house and Davida at her house. And, you know, everybody is trying their best right now. So please excuse any audio glitches. We're, we're, we're doing what we can. If you liked what you heard uh, today, you know, podcasts are, uh, you know, 
don't worry about us so much, but uh, listenership is is down all across podcasts because people aren't commuting. They're not doing the usual things where they would carve out time during their day to just sit and listen to a podcast. So if you like this one or if you like any podcast, um, it's really helpful right now, especially to go to where you get your podcasts and leave reviews and stars to share them with other people so we can keep on having these conversations um, with amazing people like Davida. Um, and, you know, everyone is really exhausted and tired right now. And this is a very long, uh, this is going to be a very long process of, of healing and making things right and making sure that there are systems for the future. So don't be apologetic about your own self-care. I know it's so easy to get caught up in the, in, in the work and in the upset and in, in the struggle of it all. But self-care isn't selfish. So if you possibly can, you know, take a take a moment. I talk about this on Twitter a lot. I call it unclench a clock, where you consciously soften your jaw muscles, drop your shoulders and loosen your muscles. And if you, like me or somebody who picks at your skin, stop doing that right now. Stop biting and picking your skin and take that moment and take a deep breath. You're not stealing anything from anyone if you are taking care of yourself. You're just keeping yourself together for the long haul. And right now, and for the next while, take your take good care of yourself until the next time.